Hello and welcome. This is a podcast of ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. Is Ukraine resilient with regard to Russian aggression, with regard to corona crisis? This is a question widely asked both in Ukraine and outside Ukraine. And I'm happy that there is a report on this issue prepared by a famous London-based think tank, Chatham House, which is called Resilient Ukraine, Safeguarding Society from Russian Aggression. The report is written by Orisa Lutsevich, research fellow and manager of Ukraine Forum at Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House, and Mathieu Bulek, research fellow at Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. I'm happy to have Mathieu and Orisa today at our podcast. Good afternoon. Good day. Good afternoon. My first question would be to Orisa. Your report is called Resilient Ukraine. So why do you think the concept of resilience is important for you? It's a good question. And I think for us, it comes back from this culture of a lot of analysis has been done about Russia's negative influence on Ukraine and what has happened with aggression, even before aggression, because I remember I was writing in a paper called Agents of the Russian World, in a way showing how Russia influences Ukraine. But uh, what we felt was missing was an analysis of what should be the response to this constant man-made disaster, this chaos that Russia wants to create. And one of the answers is, of course, resilience. The concept comes from the more natural disasters, you know, the response to earthquakes and ability to withstand these disasters. But we see how now with COVID, people asking questions, how do we make global economy more resilient? So it's the question of how do you sustain and persevere in uh, being constantly, if you want, disrupted from within, disrupted from within. So we, we thought that this is an interesting concept. And also it's, it started being more and more used in the EU communications, in NATO communications, with a little substance of it. What it, is, what it actually means to be a resilient polity, a resilient country. So we try to answer that question. Before we come to the resilience itself, it's important to describe the threat, and you describe it in your report, but let me ask you to summarize your findings. Mathieu, why it is not enough to have military defense for Ukraine? Why Ukraine needs to be internally resilient? Sure, absolutely. We're through this, this concept of resilience, what we wanted to show is the level of empowerment of local citizens in Ukraine, because contrary to these very top-down, state-based, institution-based approach of resilience, like Orisha mentioned, what we wanted to do is turn it the other way around and show that resilience starts with individuals, with citizens who, are, who feel empowered to actually build something, a resilient Ukraine, which is the end game or the desired end state for civil society and community-based organizations and individual citizens today. So what we wanted to show is that it starts with people first, which is also the key, for instance, to conflict resolution, a human-based approach or a citizen-based approach. And that through case studies and examples, we could show and demonstrate these levels of resilience, what we call resilience dividends, that civil society and individuals have been demonstrating through these hardships of these man-made disruptions that Ukraine has been going under for, uh, since 2013-2014. 
Orisio, you are talking about the civic resilience and it's very important because we have more and more sociological studies saying that the activity of civil society is actually decreasing in Ukraine. And you, in your report, say that, well, around only 10% of Ukrainian citizens are really active. So my question is, don't we exaggerate the role of the civil society in building the resilience in Ukraine? Well, if I may just rewind a step back to give a very clear definition of resilience, because I think it's important for our listeners to understand what it is we are talking about. And we approach resilience as an ability to prepare for disruption, to recover from the shocks and grow from this disruptive experience. And here, the, the emphasis on the third component of resilience which is growth from disruption, is very important because Ukraine's institutions are hollowed. We all know how weak they are, how they are, you know, in some degree corrupted, ineffective. So it's important for Ukraine to use crises, all kinds of, including Russian aggression, to reboot and to create resilience. And here I come back to your question about do we exaggerate the importance or the power of civil society? I actually, we analyze, the, of course, the, the depths of engagement, if you look, you know, in this percentage-wise, of course, it's quite shallow. So there's a couple of active people in each community that are pushing Ukraine forward, while the majority of citizens are, in a way, passive observers, if you want. But a lot of innovation in Ukraine came from actually civil society and private sector. They did not come from state institutions themselves. You know, we're giving examples of, for example, the work of uh, Legal 100 that was addressing issues of veterans. It was grassroots lawyers who saw problems of veterans were providing services to the veterans, and then they became in, involved in setting up the new ministry that, that was in charge of the veterans. So I think the importance is that there are these active people that are very committed, committed that are in a way the capital of resilience. But to have a deeper penetration of this, we need more citizens engaging in decision making, especially at the local level. Let me come back to these uh, case studies that you mentioned a little bit later, to the case study of Legal 100 and some others. But first, let me ask a, a political question. We have new authorities for already one year. We had presidential and parliamentary election last year. So do you think that new authorities, the Zelensky administration, makes Ukraine more resilient or less resilient than before? If I may start answering this question, I'd be also interested what Mathieu thinks. To me, I think Zelensky is missing opportunity of applying this resilience framework to managing both the conflict and also diminishing Russian negative influence. And I'm saying this because resilience is uh, not so much about what you do, but how you do it. And one of the big hows in this um, equation is actually involvement of diverse stakeholders in the society in co-creating policy. And we do see that Zelensky's circle is narrow, that he, you know, relies more on loyalty rather than on, uh, you know, either um, representation, because, you know, you could have civil society representing a certain group of doctors or teachers or mayors. And I think 
one of the key features that is also missing is this adaptive thinking. Although we know that Zelensky at the beginning when he was running the campaign, he was always saying, I will learn from my mistakes, I will be adapting. But we don't really see this in, reflected in how policy is made. There are very few platforms for consultations with civil society and there's even you know, this kind of gap uh, emerging between uh, civil society and, and, and the authorities. There's also misunderstanding on the value of decentralization, I think. And it was unfortunate that we've heard more and more Zelensky talking about the vertical of power and uh, not actually consulting with local communities and his trips his trips to the regions often remind a very neo-Soviet style of a nachalnik who comes and, and, and you know, punishes the bad people and rewards the good ones. So I think he, he misses an opportunity here, something that actually Poroshenko did, because after the Russian aggression, he involved a lot of volunteers and a lot of civil society activists in all kinds of reform offices, and it had, they, they could contribute to Ukraine, to resilient Ukraine. Absolutely, I completely agree. And there's a lot of buzzwords going on in Kiev around conflict resolution, around safe reintegration. But it's really hard for Zelensky now to to basically talk the you know walk the walk of beyond talking the talk, especially because there is very limited capacity to apply this resilience-based approach to the conflict and further down to conflict resolution. Because as Orisia mentioned, these very narrow views on how to integrate civil society. They are very marginally included in the implementation of conflict discussions and conflict-related um, discussions. There is a clear lack of strategic communication to the public. There is a genuine lack of communication concerning what to do next. The government is not communicating to its very citizens the ambition of reintegration or the ambition of conflict resolution, um, which is something that we are calling for in, in the paper in terms of recommendation is that the government has been talking a lot, contrary to the campaign of Zelensky, where he was actually on sort of listening mode. Well, I would argue that Zelensky needs to come back to this listening mode and actually embark on what we could be you know, calling listening tours in order to take stock of what citizens say, local people from across the regions, across the country, especially in the East, to understand and discuss what could be the preconditions of peace, what could be the terms of these discussions concerning the safe reintegration of Donbass. What are the genuine grievances of people and how they should be addressed? Because there's a lot that needs to be done uh, between state and non-state actors and their interaction to do so. It's okay to talk about the war. It's okay to talk about reintegration. The problem is that people are not empowered today to, to, to give their opinion because there is no such thing as a safe space to voice their concerns, voice their grievances, and try to bring them to the government and bring them to the Nechavstva in Kiev. What bothers me in this situation is that how Ukraine is organized right now, because we are in the middle of the decentralization reform, and I think in, in theory it is very good, it is very progressive, but there is a, a drawback, a challenge, is that, for example, the central government will be having less and less power over the regions. And at a certain moment we can face a situation when a particular mayor will decide whether to be resilient or not to be resilient, against whom to be resilient, 
resilient, etc. And I think this is a problem that is not so much discussed in Ukraine right now, which should be discussed, how to balance this decentralization with a kind of a national unity. But let me come back to your report. I remind to our listeners that we are discussing a report of Chatham House Resilient Ukraine, written by Orisa Lutsevich and Mathieu Buleg. And in this report, you are discussing in detail some case studies. We already mentioned the uh, Legal 100, I mean, the initiative when lawyers help certain vulnerable people and, and communities. But there is other case studies as well, and in particular with regard to media literacy. You discuss a project by IREX, which brings media literacy to schools. So my question to you, Aurisio, would be why media literacy at schools is so important for you? Well, you know, I think we're all, uh, you know, washed with the information. I think actually media literacy is important, both at school and the adult level, because we've We've grew up uh, with very few sources of information, and right now our children are, you know, they, they are swimming in the sea of, of data, information, speed. So, and especially because Ukraine is so much on this front line of vicious disinformation, but also Ukraine's own media environment is quite toxic. TV channels owned by, and not only TV channels, but the also website, websites and, and the online content is owned by various financial interest groups who are pushing their own agenda. And the idea is not necessarily providing, you know, unbiased factual information. So information is the backbone for democracy, because this is what helps citizens to form their opinions and to form right opinions. And we have seen how, you know, here with Brexit, or even with Trump elections, it is easy to manipulate with targeted information, public opinion, and, and our decisions, our votes. So we looked at what IREX was doing in Ukraine, and what is interesting is that they had a control group of children who were taking courses and who are not taking courses, but also they, they embedded this media literacy as part of other subjects, such as history or literature, where they would analyze the text for... Uh, you know, quality of information in the text, or when they study history about the birth of broadcast, for example, media, they would integrate this media literacy in, in the curricula. I hope this program evolves further, but, you know, as with many things in Ukraine, a lot of good things start, but then they need to scale up really to make a difference, because right now it's like a drop in the ocean. Absolutely. Capacity building for such projects is a priority and it should be strengthened and promoted, even extended to even younger kids as teenagers, because kids are, are learning to, to consume and use information even earlier than the, the former generations, of course, because of the access to social media, the access to different platforms and medium of information. Um, therefore, we, we, we believe that really focusing on critical thinking, on media literacy, sort of know your media uh, courses would empower these future smart citizens or the, these future consumers of political information to have all the tools they need to make educated decisions when it comes to discerning what is real, what isn't real, what is fake news, what is actually something that is corroborated with facts, and what is good journalism to what is not good journalism. So a lot can be done. And what is interesting is that a lot can be done at home in Western countries as well. There's a lot that Western countries could learn from Ukraine in the uh, success stories of these cases, uh, specifically IREX on cognitive resilience. So it, all, you know, it also starts with a bit of self-introspection on what can be done and what can we learn from others and successes from others. 
You also mentioned a local project called Nakipela in Kharkiv. I think it is a nationwide famous local media project, a news agency which also becomes a hub of unifying the activist actors, the local media actors. And you also mentioned a project by Ukraine Crisis Media Center of museums in eastern Ukraine. So the idea to, to bring culture in industrial towns in eastern Ukraine. So why these two aspects, the local initiatives and cultural initiatives, are important? Well, you know, we, we believe, and I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners, that all politics is local. A lot of things that define national trends starts bubbling and happening at this at the local level and uh, when we looked at Nakipelo the way they managed actually to to apply this resilience um, criteria and one is adaptability and, and you know this is something that is very important at all levels of organizations nations uh, corporations right now we are living in the world of permanent change continuous change and complexity we cannot spend a lot of time developing perfect blueprints and strategic plans. We need to build agile institutions and Nakipelo were able to do it. Of course, this was a group of journalists who wanted to give information to uh, Kharkiv uh, citizens, but also when they saw crisis on the front line, they became like a hub for volunteers where they could gather in the information and you know, become this kind of a medium between donations of citizens and needs on the front line. But also they've moved then further on to see uh, the role that they could play in transparency and a watchdog function at the city. And this is something we talked about, examples like Nakipelo, local news. And you hear now people like Timothy Snyder, who studies totalitarianism and compares it even between US and Russia, talks about the importance of local news. If we don't get information about what's happening in our community, we can be really easily indoctrinated. And this is the value of groups like Nakipelo. And for the museums, I think it was to us it was quite impressive in a way they worked with a, approaching local identity because we do know that you know Kremlin is trying to appropriate Ukraine's identity. It's manipulating a lot of narratives around history and uh, giving opportunity to people in the East that you know are not used to asking questions about where they're coming from because of the nature of this region in Ukraine. Opportunity of self-reflection and understanding the value of their own community, small historical things, it, it gives ownership. This is something that, you know, is so important. It, if people feel ownership, they feel then compelled to defend this community, this, this city, uh, this piece of land. And this is what a lot of Ukrainians did. But this project filled a lot of senses into empty building of a museum that was dead. It, it breathed in life by letting community in, discussing about its history. Mathieu, would you like to add something? No, not particularly. I think it's a really good presentation of these local initiatives. And they, they, these two initiatives have, uh, have in common that they talk about locality, you know, re rerouting people and empower them to rediscover their roots through local participatory politics, local engagement at the community-based level, and local identity. I think if we can plug the COVID pandemic at any point, I think it's there because we, you know, we have been, our mobilities have been cut and we have sort of been rediscovering our own 
locales, our own localities, and we, we have been re-empowered or given more initiatives to be rooted inside our local communities through this crisis. And this is therefore very important for citizens in Ukraine to go through this mental process of rediscovering local identity, rediscovering what they can bring to their community from the bottom up and see where they can expand these spaces of freedom and therefore these spaces for resilience against any sort of aggressions. And just a comment, because I remember my trip to Pokrovsk and I've been to Slavyansk two years ago. And Konstantinivka, you know, these are 80,000 inhabitants, uh, you know, cities very industrialized. And you understand going there that there were no independent places. Everything belonged to somebody, either to a factory or to a mine or to, a, you know, or to a local city hall that, uh, you know, would only give access if they wanted. So using a museum as the new convening place, kind of a new magnet to energize the community, was a new experience for many people because suddenly they feel this is their own space. It doesn't belong to some local minigarch or uh, some politician, but they they felt uh, really inspired by that. It's very important that you mention the role of activists, but I would like to draw your attention to one particular thing, which I think there is a growing pressure from law enforcement services on the activists, on the activist community. We can mention the Sternenko case. We can also mention very dubious investigation of the murder of journalist Pavel Sheremet. So there is increasing impression that there is a kind of this controversy, conflict between law enforcement services and activist community, and maybe even a war of law enforcement against activist community, which of course hampers the activist community to grow up and to build this civil society resilient Ukraine. I wouldn't go as far as calling it a war, but that definitely is a missed step for the government, Zelensky government, to reintegrate civil society as a core constituent of policymaking in Ukraine. Remember right after Maidan and the, um, the, the first successive governments, civil society activists became a sort of backbone and core of policymaking. They were very deeply engaged in policymaking, but that only lasted a few months until President Poroshenko decided to sort of get rid of them, disempower them, and remove them from politics because they were creating a shadow to his intentions to recapitalize state structures and increase his own personal power and his own personal space inside Ukrainian politics. When President Zelensky arrived to power a bit over a year ago, then there was not the sort of helping hand given to civil society activists to take them back to where they belong, which is inside policymaking in, 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 in Ukraine. I think there was a misstep here. What is also troubling is, as you said, uh, Volodymyr, this sort of, I wouldn't call it a war, but I, I would definitely call it a systematic willingness by police authorities and state security structures to disenfranchise a lot of civil society activists and civil society organizations, which is a very troubling trend and a misstep once again to bring these people, bring these community-based organizations and NGOs back to the table where they belong in active policymaking and restructuring 
of state structures in Ukraine. I would add that there is a growing signs of a kind of an information war against the word activist or activism in itself. So we see this information war coming from pro-Russian and anti-Western actors, which are trying to devaluate the very essence of activism, the very word activism, the very concept of civic activism. And they're trying to present activists as either far-right people or the so-called far-right people or people funded by the Western funds, the Soros foundations, whatever else. So the, these memes of Sarasiata or uh, grant suckers, etc., etc. So do you see this threat of devaluation of the, of the very word and concept of activism, Mauricio? Well, I think it's important that you pointed that this or the the information warfare waged by some of the pro-Russian media outlets in Ukraine with this anti-Western narrative, the even the terms like foreign agents sometimes being used to portray that this movement in Ukraine is not organic, that it comes from abroad. This is the same playbook as the Kremlin says, that, you know, this democratic Ukraine is an invention of uh, uh, Greek Catholics, Austro-Hungarians, Polish. So it's not a Ukraine's natural environment. There is a risk. And I think that what is important to mention that this trend has not started so recently. If you go back to two years ago, attacks in Odessa, attacks in Kharkiv were taking place even before Zelensky came to power, which brings me back to the personality of the interior minister, because I think Mr. Avako has a lot of responsibility to bear for the kind of law enforcement culture and lack of actually a serious focus on the human rights because a lot of these attacks are taking place by a local crony, you know, elites who are threatened by anti-corruption activists and then these anti-corruption activists are not properly protected and there's impunity. And of course, in any country where there's weak rule of law, it's dangerous to be an activist. And Ukraine is not an exception. That's why I think the Solidarity Network among the activists, there was even a network set up by Freedom House in Ukraine to monitor these abuses. There's a map of abuses that could be seen, but there has to be, you know, double down on rule of law in Ukraine because our report still looked more at the external, you know, influence of Russia. Ukraine's rule of law is, is its own curse and Ukraine has to deal with this to improve space for civil society. Indeed, there is a very strong internal actor, law enforcement ecosystem. I would use this popular term, probably self-ironically, because all these communities of judges, prosecutors, police officers, the head of police is not very fair, not very just, often very corrupt, enriching. And this is a very powerful play in current Ukraine. And probably the law enforcement class is a player who actually governs Ukraine despite all, all the changes. And paradoxically, this class becomes even more powerful with these European reforms which made, for example, judiciary power more independent, more self-sufficient, more autarkic, but I would say more independent even from control, from checks and balances. But this is another story, and of course we can we can talk uh, later maybe at some other podcast about, about it. But let me ask a question about the current circumstances, the coronavirus pandemics and the lockdown. So what this 
coronavirus tells us about Ukrainian resilience in terms of the resilience of the population, of public institutions, of the whole discipline of citizens. Matyo, what do you think? It's a really good question. And I know Arisia will have um, way, way more answers because she actually wrote a piece on that for Chatham House very recently. But I think what the, the COVID crisis shows and, and it keeps showing with a number of cases still coming in at this moment is that civil society and people, local, local organizations have demonstrated more resilience and more capability to self-organize and organize themselves to fight the pandemic and create these safe spaces for citizens more than the state itself. I think this is the ultimate disjoinder between the ability of state institutions to deal with these external shocks and the ability, the strengthened ability and resilience of local people to organize themselves and bring some comfort and relief where the state cannot come in. Whether it's an external man-made disruption like uh, Russian aggression or an external epidemiological threat coming from God knows where, this is the constant today in, in, in modern Ukraine, in resilient Ukraine. I think the, the self-organization of citizens at a local level is this constant that has been growing since these people were in were given a space to grow since 2014 after the, uh, the revolution of dignity. And COVID has demonstrated that this is only the beginning of what resilience really means for Ukrainians at the very basic citizen level. Thank you, Mathieu and Orissa. It's interesting because we mentioned pandemics at the beginning as, as the way of uh, unexpected shocks that come to societies, something that few actually were prepared, not only in Ukraine, but, but, but globally. But epidemics also have something similar to Russian influence in Ukraine. It's, it tries to attack vulnerabilities, right? Those entry points that are easier to enter. It creates chaos. Uh, it's quite unpredictable. Um, so you would imagine that in society like Ukraine, it would be great to have some learning, you know, and compare between the two. Because like in the case with Russian aggression, in the same way as with COVID, what is effective is to have the response structured around the teams. Because local communities are closest to epidemics, they also closer to notice the signs of Russian, you know, interference on the ground and see people, you know, being on different payrolls and fermenting different protests. It's so important that these community, these teams of teams then feed in information to the top. And this is something we, we're missing in Ukraine very often. It's basically then connecting different teams of people in a concerted effort. We know that Ukrainian healthcare needs serious reform. It's number one grievance, actually, if you look at the IRI public opinion poll, the biggest concern people have, and that was before COVID. I'm sure now it's even more important. With this recent effort, with these local hubs in Poltava, in Odessa, in Lviv, in all major cities where civil society, and I must say, small and medium business, Because we often forget about companies, Ukrainian business people who actually participate very actively in, in, uh, in civil society, have knowledge that has to be fed up top to be part of the healthcare reform. And this is, would be the, the task for central authorities to effectively coordinate this, which we don't see right now. And, and I think Ukraine will suffer because of that lack of feeding information, collective, you know, reflection, but local action. 
let me now come to my last question but at the same time come back maybe to the one of the first issues that we discussed this opposition between civil society and state and I personally come from the civil society and I stay with the civil society although many of my friends joined the public administration but seeing from the civil society I think we sometimes try to exaggerate the role of the civil society and exaggerate this juxtaposition between, let's say, a good civil society, so-called good civil society and so-called bad state, or vice versa, the good state versus bad civil society funded by the Western international actors. It's a very popular narrative. And I think this just opposition is a very dangerous for the current Ukraine because what we should think is rather a cohabitation or cooperation between civil society and state so that they could enrich each other and find synergy between the two. Machu, what do you think? I think you're absolutely right. It's uh, you know it it takes two to tango when it works on on both sides of the divide. I think there needs to be an acknowledgement from the governments that they need civil society. They want to reach out to all citizens, especially when it comes. If you look at conflict resolution in Donbas, that it needs to be a human-based approach, and therefore there needs to be space for people to talk about the conflict, and everybody needs to be on board. It's a whole of society approach. So the government needs to come to terms with this, you know, come to terms with their own insecurities when it comes to transparency, when it comes to the fight against corruption, that there, there, there needs to be this space for, for transparency and increasing the level and the amount of visibility of civil society activists. But on the other end of the divide, uh, for civil society, they need, you know, there's also this need to realize that things will take time before they, they move. And it's, you know, they, there's a, they, there cannot be space for being disenfranchised or giving up on this possibility of bringing uh, capacity building to civil society to, to scale up to the national level. It takes time. It will take time. It will take endeavor. And people will fight for a better Ukraine in that sense. But it, it needs to work both ways. And I'm absolutely convinced that if there's one model that could work along the way, it is this this approach in Ukraine that you need you need these two this rejoinder of these two forces. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. It will probably take also a generational change and a generational shift when all the old elites, you know, we were talking about these local bastions, these growing uh, minigarchs and oligarchs and the resistance from the old system that was not completely deconstructed after Maidan. It will take generational changes if people will really feel the need to change things both from the ground up and from the bottom from the from the bottom up sorry and from the top down and then maybe we'll talk about how you know resilient ukraine has become but it will take years Orisio, let me sharpen the question and ask, don't you think that uh, with this opposition, civil society versus state, we kind of promote some sort of neo-anarchic version of Ukrainian identity? We understand, of course, that in Ukrainian political culture, this anarchic or freedom-loving element is probably much more present than in the Russian political culture. But still, there is huge danger uh, of exaggerating this element because it's a, it's a danger to Ukrainian statehood and to Ukrainian identification of the society and its role in the state development, etc. Orisi, what do you think? 
I think, uh, I hope, of course, we focused in this conversation a lot on civil society, but in our paper, we dwell a lot actually on the function of institutions. And we talk about the importance of state uh, institutions at the national level and at the local level to deliver services and to protect Ukraine, safeguard Ukraine from this negative influence from Russia. And we, we say that systemic thinking and effective cooperation between state and non-state actors will improve response to Russian aggression. So I agree with you that it would be detrimental to Ukraine to simply sustain this clash or believe that out of this constant clash, something productive will come up. Of course, civil society everywhere in this function of the watchdog is watching the state. So there is an intrinsic conflict between the two, if you want, and it should exist. It's healthy to have this kind of uh, conflict. But what is important for Ukraine is, you know what, it's, it will be 30-year anniversary next year as an independent state that emerged from the totalitarian Soviet legacy to understand that each sector, each individual in a way, an institution has its purpose. In Ukraine, these lines are very often blurred and you have politicians running charity, civil society, owning a media and everything in one. And it's important for democracy to have this separation of different functions. So we are not just advocating for a strong civil society, but for embedding those people from civil society more into policymaking because we do see in Ukraine innovation coming exactly from non-state actors. Thank you so much for this very interesting conversation. Let me remind to our listeners that this was a Ukraine World podcast around the paper Resilient Ukraine, published by Chatham House, a London-based think tank. And we talked with the authors of the report, the experts of the Chatham House, Orisa Lutsevich and Matteo Bulek. This was a podcast of ukraineworld.org, a traditional podcast explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a host of Ukraine World podcast and chief editor at ukraineworld.org. I was assisted by sound editor Oleksiy Soldatov and social media editor Maria Sidenko. Thanks so much for listening to us and stay with us.